Hello and welcome back to the Murphy Corp podcast. This week, Rachel has had a chat with Dan Leakey, the newly appointed business change director for Different. Some really interesting stories from Dan, especially the one about the duck house. Enjoy. Very good, thank you. So, going to kick off with an easy one. Um, what does uh, what does business change mean to you? Oh, I love an easy one to start with. Um, for me, business change is a is a massive thing. Um, I think it gets confused a lot of the time with um, horrible phrases like digital transformation. Um, for me, business change is about actually changing the way you operate as a business. And that doesn't mean you just turn some offline process that you've had for years, whether that's a, a retail business, whether that's a phone line, whether it's a paper form, and turn that into something that you can put on a website somewhere. Um, for me, it's about the actual guts of that operation, how that transaction takes place. What does it constituate? What does it? What's, what are its component parts? Probably a better way to put it. Probably a real word as well. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, I'm not sure I've heard constituate before, I mate, like but I thought, I thought I was learning something new. We'll have to look that one up in a dictionary. I might have made it up. I'm pretty sure I did. Um, it's a, for me, though, it's about that, like, getting into that real level of detail right in the, in the heart of the business, about understanding what it is that you want to happen as a business um, and to work out what bits make it better when you change them. Um, you know, if you take it to, to, to real sort of nuts and bolts levels, if you're, if you're a shop and you're selling a product, um, are you procuring that product in the most efficient way? Are you marketing that product in the most efficient way? Are you selling that product at the right market, at the right levels? Um, and does that product do what it needs to do for your customers? Um, so there's, and those are the real sort of nuts and bolts. It's not about changing the frippery around things. Um, it's about the actual real heart and soul of a business when it comes to, to what you need to change. Okay, brilliant. And what about your role? Um, so in roles that you've done before or, or at different, um, you know, can you talk to us about where you've driven business change? I've been lucky. I've worked in, a, in quite a few really interesting uh, public and private sector places um, where some real business changes happened. Um, I think probably the, the, the biggest business change that I was involved in um, was when I worked in the airline industry. I worked for British Airways as they moved their operation into Terminal 5. Um, and that was a, a root and branch overhaul of the way they did business. Um, I was involved right at the very early days of that where they were looking into how the use of the computer systems differed in Terminal 1 at Heathrow to Terminal 4 at Heathrow. The same staff for the same airline doing the same job using the same systems operated in almost completely alien fashion to each other. You couldn't take one member of staff from one terminal, put them into another and expect them to work because they just wouldn't know what they were doing. Um, so there was a major business change required in that um, to prepare for that move to Terminal 5. Now, it's well documented that Terminal 5 didn't exactly go smoothly, but the systems did work. Um, the, the, uh, the people using them didn't necessarily know where they needed to go, and that was a real uh, real hang up of a manual process, but that was that was kind of my introduction to to real technology driven business change. Um, 
and I that that's many years ago now, but I've been lucky that I've been able to get my hands really dirty and really um, into the weeds with some real meaty stuff in the public sector since then as well. So probably my favourite one um, that I could talk about um, is with the Independent Parliamentary Standards Authority, um, which to, to those who might not recognise the name of that is the MP Expenses Watchdog. Now, I think we'd all, we'd all fancy getting involved in an overhaul in that area. Well, absolutely. Um, it was fascinating. Um, I think I'm contractually obliged for the rest of my life to, to say that they never approved the claim of a duck house for an MP. Um, need that on record. Um, <laughs> but it was stuff like that, which were... When this was run by the House of Parliament, um, there was clearly, as the Telegraph uh, exposed, uh, major flaws in the system. Now, they'd been operating for a couple of years, for about four years, I think, before I joined them uh, to look at their digital practices. Um, and they had put in place pretty robust audit systems, uh, processes for claiming and for authorising and the checks and balances that were needed around credit cards and around staff employment, because a lot of what MPs pay for out of their expenses is actually their staff in their constituency offices. There are many, many MPs who don't ever claim a penny for anything other than their staff, and it looks like they claim hundreds of thousands. So one of the things that I was really keen to do was to surface that information in a way that made it accessible to the users. And the users is everybody in the country who has an MP. Um, you're entitled to know what they're spending on. It shouldn't be hidden in CSV files that are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of lines thick that you're just never going to be able to, to interpret. Um, so we led on a, on a big program, um, which I had the interesting title of Web Platform Manager. Um, so I was in charge of looking after everything that went online. Now, we built a New, completely new website from scratch, uh, making the user journey much more uh, easy to, when it came to interrogating what your particular MP, or any particular MP for that matter, uh, was spending. Um, but we also had to, to do that. We had to address some of the big internal processes. So there was a, a root and branch overhaul of the operational procedures um, and the systems that supported them. Um, and I think that's important that they, you that it was in that order. So we looked at the processes, then we looked at the systems that powered Yeah, them. I mean, it kind of has to be. Otherwise, it's a bit, you know, arse about face. Yeah, there was a there was a big movement um, internally to say, well, we just need an ERP system. Let's buy an ERP system, put that in place, and it'll, it'll run everything for us. And I'm, I had to put the brakes on at that point and say, no, understand what it is that you're trying to achieve first. Do the process analysis. Do the gap analysis of where we are and where we want to be get proper data uh, and drive the change from there on in. Um, they're great people at that organisation. Uh, that's one of the one of the best things of working there was the people. They were absolutely fantastic. Some of the highest qualified, and if I may say, underpaid staff I've ever had the privilege of working with in the public sector. Um, but the reason that they all had a passion for what they were doing, um, and they were all passionate about making it better for the public and, to a certain degree, making it better for the MPs because... Make the process better for them. They're less likely to make mistakes, and mistakes are what could bring down an MP in that job. So, put, being able to put in those online systems that made it visible for the public, putting in the back-end systems that fitted the process of the business that the people were able to work with, really made a massive impact on that. And I'm very proud to have been part of that. And how did the MPs respond to that? 
I'm pretty sure I'm on a few lists that I wouldn't like to be on. <laughs> what, not the old Christmas card list? Certainly not the Christmas card lists, no. Um, but the so one of the things that we did with that was give the MPs uh, a narrative as well. Um, so we set up a page for each MP where they could put an, an annual report, if you like, to detail what they'd spent and why they'd spent it. Um, that's a platform that independently they don't have. They can put out party communications, they can send out mailers to their constituents if they want, but um, as a, an online platform for them so that they could actually document why they'd spent what they'd spent or why they hadn't spent anything in some cases. Um, and that, so it was, it was a, a swinging around about approach. Uh, we we, uh, we surfaced all of their information in a much more usable way that it was easy to find, but we also gave them a platform to explain it. Yeah, and I guess creating that buy-in um, enabled, uh, enabled a, a win-win. I wanted to just go back there, Dan, and, and uh, ask a follow-on question about your your role in the airline industry. Um, what, what you described there um, in way of the, the change in the approach sounds remarkably similar to what Matt Hancock is wanting to try and, try and drive across the NHS. So the ability for clinical staff to be able to work in any hospital. And, you know, for, does, that, does that kind of ring true? Yeah, it does. Um, and, and I think it's a very... There, there are a lot of parallels. Um, British Airways was, once upon a time, a public body. Um, and a lot of its operational um, issues, certainly in the early days after privatisation, were civil service bureaucracy problems. Um, and it took a very, very, very long time to extrapolate themselves from that world of um, Whitehall uh, because they, they're very hierarchical structure within the airline um, and very specialised. So there were the silos in the airline were probably as deep and as entrenched as any I've ever seen in the public sector since. Um, the, the mobility of staff, if you like, as a, as a goal um, was kind of a byproduct um the operation change was driving that but what it exposed was this lack of mobility in the staff um and working in one terminal of an airport to another isn't it's you know it's a 10 minute shuttle bus difference there, there shouldn't be any gap between it um and i think the same parallel can be drawn to the nhs there are hospitals all across london um where the fluctuation of supply and uh, supply demand is uh, is very much tangible and um, one hospital could be very quiet the other one could be extremely busy uh, but but there is no possibility of that sharing a workload um i think that the the future model of the nhs being this the seven day approach and this much more flexible workforce um is it's a brilliant aspiration and i don't underestimate the size of the task underneath it either yeah you and me both i think uh it's absolutely needed. You know, the system was built for a very different, um, a very different demographic, and seventy years ago. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, we have to get creative. Yeah, and I think you know it's been mentioned many times. Um, it comes up in conversation a lot whenever I get um, speaking with health, um, especially people who work in health technology. Um, that what we have is a national sickness service, um, yeah. and it's not built for the the modern world that we live in, where people want to actually manage their health rather than just deal with the sickness. Yeah, agree. Um, and, and when you've been driving business change initiatives before, um, you know, what are some of the challenges that you've come across? For me, I like to I like to let the evidence drive the change. So I'm very much uh, about the data when it comes to business change. 
when businesses get changed around people's hunches, and I'm, I'm talking primarily about the hippos, um, those are the people who have the hunches right at the top of the business, and they see something shiny and they want to make it change because that'll make everything better. Now, that's not to say that people running businesses aren't brilliant. Some of them are, um, but they don't always have the best ideas. Um, so for part, me, part of me wants to keep interjecting, Dan, but I'm trying desperately to keep my mouth shut. That's right. Um, there's the, the biggest challenge for me is getting that data analysis work done up front so that you can present the facts of a business. So many times that the facts will tell you a completely different direction that your hunch would take you in. Um, and the best thing about data is you can't argue with it. Um, if it is telling you something, it is telling you the truth. Um, your understanding of it is the key. And I think that's where, for, for me, all business change has to start, is with the evidence, with the data. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Um, and, and I, I mean, I'm, I'm somebody who runs on gut feel. That's, that's, how, I, that's how I roll. Um, and, you know, a recent project we did, well, we're still doing it different, actually, um, was for NHS jobs. Every part of me assumed we would go and buy an off-the-shelf uh, recruitment platform. And um, it was only when we did the user research and we really looked at the costs and the pricing and the license model um, that, you know, the reality was the data told us it was not going to be possible because the license costs would have blown the budget, at which point you have yeah. to start to uh, you have to start to look at these things, uh, these things differently. So, I, yeah, I, I would agree the, the, you know, that kind of evidence based approach. Uh, for business changes is absolutely crucial. Absolutely. I think if I'd add one more thing to that, which is I've always been a big um, big supporter of the, the make it versus market argument. Um, in the case of something like the NHS jobs platform, it is almost too big for anything that is out there to cope with. Um, that's not the case for everything in the NHS. There are a lot of things in the NHS, when I worked in it certainly, that they were off-the-shelf solutions that were potentially being overlooked just for the sake of the NHS owning the NHS, if you see what I mean. Um, so I'm a, I always like to have the evidence base that can weigh up that make it versus market argument. Yeah, makes, uh, makes sense. And what about lasting legacy? Um, and, and what I mean by that is, you know, there is always a business change or a transformation initiative being kicked off um, in organisations, um, as part of projects and programs, but but how how do you make sure you leave a lasting legacy? Oh, that's a good one. Um, for me, the legacy shouldn't be about me. Um, it shouldn't be oh yeah, Dan was here and he did this and wasn't that great. Um, the legacy should be in the, the the way the business operates after I'm after what I've played my role in it. Um, I think I was lucky enough to spend some time working for the Ministry of Defence a few years ago. Um, we were working on a very innovative product in the, in the cybersecurity um, part of the supply chain um, for the MOD. Now, obviously, I can't go into too much detail of that sort of stuff, but... Um, it's all what, very secret squirrel, anything on like that bit. side of things. Yeah, I could tell you, but I'd have to kill you. Um, the biggest thing in terms of the legacy for that was the approach. So I came in with a, a very different attitude, I suppose, to the way that a lot of the the development of new products within uh, the Ministry of Defence uh, or any of the Defence Forces has looked at. Um, we had a, a, a joking sign put above our desk which said no apps. 
because everybody in MOD wanted to build an app, um, and there's no need for them. Um, and I think that that is that kind of um, the shiny, shiny thing, as I was talking about earlier, being the apps and things that people say, oh, yeah, we could do this. No, you don't need to. Um, you need to understand your product. You need to understand your users. You need to understand your challenge. Um, and it's those sort of building blocks, if you like, of, a, of an approach to handling new things, new changes. Those are the legacies that I like to leave behind. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think taking the individual out of the equation is um, is is absolutely key. My, my view would be that, you know, individuals can drive energy um, and they can kind of galvanize the troops. But, you know, any business change should never be predicated around one uh, one person. No, absolutely. And especially in the case of the Ministry of Defence, where they operate on a tools basis. So nobody really does any job for more than two years um, in the Ministry of Defence. So you've got to have those processes that you can leave behind so that the next person that comes into the job can pick it up, can run with it. And I think that applies everywhere. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree. Uh, sounds ideal. I mean, I've never thought about uh, never thought about joining a government department, but a two-year tour in an environment may well work. Yeah, it's a, it's a really great structure. It does lead to some hilarious email addresses, though, because um, anybody who's worked or interacted with anyone at the Ministry of Defence, and I'm not giving away any secrets here, um, the, your email address is based on the role that you do. Um, so we ended up with some very, very long email addresses that made no sense in English because they're all abbreviations of a role within a department amongst the service. Wow. Sounds, uh, <laughs> certainly doesn't sound like business change. But, I think uh, I had a 37-character email address at one point, which amused me greatly. Yeah, I mean, that is, uh, that is staggering. And what drives you then, Dan? What drives you to, uh, to want to do business change rather than uh, uh, kind of business as usual? So I absolutely love seeing the effect of business change. Um, I, I draw a, a really simple analogy when people ask me what business change is, and it's to a window cleaner. So for a window cleaner who wants to change his business, he might think, I need a bigger squeegee, I need a bigger bucket, I need better soap. What he actually needs is a ladder so that he can do upstairs properties. Um, but he's only focusing on the detail of his day-to-day -day job. Once you give him a ladder and a hose so he can go up and do more properties, he's doubled the range of his business overnight. And it's that simple analogy where you take, it doesn't matter how complex the business is, if you apply some sound principles to it, I'm a big proponent, and I know you are, and anybody who listens to this will know, of Wardley mapping. Um, it's a real clear way to break down the needs of a business, understand what the priority should be focused on in terms of investment, in terms of, of customization, in terms of the real inventive nature work, um, and where you just don't need to do that. So... If I go back to the window cleaner analogy, yes, he probably does need a bigger bucket. He might need a better sponge. He doesn't need to build those. He can just go and buy those from a shop. Um, what he might need to do is to look at how his pumping system works to get water up to a third floor or a fourth floor so that he can really advance his business. That's the sort of thing that doing something as simple as Wardley mapping can expose those real underlying uh, factors that, that just the small changes make massive difference. And that's those changes. When those things come in, I love it. I love seeing the real effect on a business. Uh, yeah, I mean, you're preaching to the converted with the Wardley mapping. I think the ability to uh, create situational awareness um, and, you know, in a really short period of time, teach people how to understand their business better is incredibly powerful for me. Yeah, and I, I, I'm a massive fan of the community around Wardley mapping as well. I'm, um, I'll, be a, I'll be present at uh, MapCamp in a couple of weeks' time and uh, 
it's that that level of community where the the sharing um, i mean you know simon created something with a creative commons license for that purpose uh, and uh, the, the community that's around it the support i absolutely love um teaching people how to to do worldly mapping themselves i've done it quite a few times now and it's um that that ability to just pass on the simple principles um and share some of the understanding of it and it really does work it's, it's one of the few tools in business over the years i've used pretty much all of them um it's one of the few tools that has stood the test of time for me um it's it's simple it's clear it provides a purpose and it shows you genuinely what you need to do yeah you you and me both i'm uh, i'm a huge advocate um, and kind of changing tactic a little bit now, but um, uh, and I almost don't want to ask about the current political situation, but I'm I'm curious about um, your views on whether the wider political situation will impact business change that companies want to undertake. Wider political situation? Is there something going on that I've missed? <laughs> <laughs> Well, it's a couple of little um, bits, mate, um, both the UK and uh, and across the pond, actually. Well, I'll tell you what, there's one business change I'd like to make, and that's the conduct of politicians in Parliament, um, but that's probably another story. Um, there's, I think, the the uncertainty, um, to use the, the horrible word that's floating around everywhere at the moment, um, around the... I'd, I would, I would I'd widen it from the political landscape. I'd say it's, it's the landscape of the UK as a whole, Um there's no there's no single business anywhere that's not affected by the the lack of certainty of where we're actually going to end up or where we're going to go. Um, from a government perspective, it's I, you know I've got a lot of friends uh, who work in very important projects in government, um, and they've had so much of their resources diverted for Brexit planning, either for deal planning, no deal planning. Um, nobody really knows which way this is going to go and we're you know we're a matter of weeks away from potentially um, not being part of the trading block that we've been part of for over 40 years there's no way any business government public practice public sector private sector even the charity sector can be fully geared up for what we're doing i think that the the most important part of it if uh, if i take our small business um, perspective is to make sure that we've got as many options open as possible and that and I think that applies right across. Um, and I'm not, you know, we can't be relying on trade deals that are going to magically appear from nowhere overnight because that's not going to happen. Um, it's just not. They, these things take so long. Anybody who's operated in a business-to-business environment knows that from your first contact to signing your deal, you're probably looking at least six months, if not a year. Now, a trade deal is an extraordinarily complicated piece of B2B business. Um, so they're not going to pop up overnight, no matter what the goodwill of the politicians behind them might be. So for me, it's that the partnership working between the private and public sector is the biggest uh, influencer on whether or not we come out of this uh, fun situation um, with the least possible damage. I think there's a lot of good uh, examples of that um, public and private sector partnership working. Um, at all levels, I, you know, I'm not going to I'm not going to completely diss the, the big boys here. There are some that have got some very good working arrangements with with government that help government to achieve their aims. Um, but I think equally, there's a there's a great deal of, of collaboration work that goes on at the SME level, certainly in digital, um, where those flexible arrangements and those those abilities to pivot and to change direction they're absolutely crucial over the next six to ten weeks. Yeah.
I would uh, I would agree with that, and um, it's uh, you know it is moving target. I'm sure we could uh, I'm sure we could debate the wider political situation for a for a lengthy period of time. I mean, I I, I guess as um, as the eternal optimist, I, I will always see opportunity um, in uncertain times. Uh, but but I uh, I think on a personal level, I'd like to uh, I'd like to see it slightly more stable. But um, you know that's. Uh, uh, what what will be will be. Uh, we'll we'll have to let it play out. Just one thing to tack onto that, which is around the the opportunity stuff. Um, and I think that for some people, when Brexit started to to delay, um, and all of the No Deal planning was was shelved, all of the money seemed to disappear overnight from government to deal with any of this sort of stuff. Um, it was directed back into other projects, which then opened up opportunities. Um, those opportunities not necessarily came to fruition. Um, and I think that's a that's one of the the downsides of, of the, uh, the the constantly shifting landscape around our exit from the EU um, is that no government department can really put their finger on what they can actually aim for um, because we're all the best will and good intentions. The the landscape will shift underneath them um, and they'll have to change direction pretty quickly. So the, there's there's pros and cons to, to to the opportunities that this situation has provided. I think. Uh, yeah, yeah, I agree. And what about from a personal standpoint, Dan? Is there a kind of personal transformation that you would be uh, you'd be happy to share with us? Yeah, um, I think it's been uh, over the last um, ten years. I would say my career direction since I left the airline industry um, has it's been a bit of a whirlwind. So when I left, um, I worked for British Airways for twelve years. Um, and I worked right from the check-in desks at the very start through every layer of management up to the, the project management in the in the top end before I left. Um, and I learned a lot from that. But what I also learned was I wasn't necessarily comfortable in big business. Now, the corporate culture of, of British Airways wasn't by any means the most toxic that I've seen. Um, but it, it, when I left, it gave me the opportunity to explore what it was like to, to work for myself. So I, I started a business up working in security um, and I, I operated for a couple of years um, as a solo. Um, and that gave me a real, uh, gave me a real drive that I don't think I'd ever knew I, it was even in me. Um, I was quite happy working along in, in the big corporate world, um, dealing with each project or each task as it came along um, and then just waiting for the next one to come and find me. When I took out on my own, um, it was then that I realized, yeah, you can't sit back and just wait for things to happen. You can't put a website up and expect somebody to phone you and call you out for a job the next day. You've got to put the hours in. You've got to put the miles in. Um, and that, I think, that, that couple of years, uh, you know, I, the, the business did okay. I sold it on and I went to work in the public sector. Now, when I got back into uh, the Department of Work and Pensions was the first place I worked in the public sector, I soon realized that that big corporate culture was there again. <laughs> and... This time, it probably was a bit more toxic. There was a real um, distrust, I think is probably the only word that I could put to it, of the people who were working within it. Um, there were people who had been in jobs for 40 years in some of the areas that I worked in, um, but had never even looked for a promotion. And these are brilliant people, um, but they, they've been turned down so many times in their early career that they just stopped. They'd just given up and they just decided to be as good as they could be at what they were doing because that was all they were ever going to do. And my self-employment background, just I couldn't settle for that. I just couldn't do it. Um, I 
worked my way around in a, in a number of different jobs um, and then moved into other areas of government um, subsequently. But it was my drive. I could not be that person. There was no way I could settle for that. And, that, and that's something that over the last, probably over the last five years has really driven me on. Um, my, for, you know, people that know me personally will know that my rise up through the ranks of the organisations that I've worked in over the last five years has been pretty stratospheric, really. Um, but it's it's the it's me using the drive that I gained from self-employment um, with the understanding of how business work that I gained from the big corporate world. I combine those two together, and the public sector is so ripe for for improvement, so ripe for business change that I'm so passionate about. Um, that I can really make a difference. And I love, I've had the chance more recently to work with not-for-profit agencies through different. Um, and we're working with some amazing people. Um, and their appetite for change is just as big as mine. And that is the real fun stuff. When you know that the people who you're working with uh, from a client perspective are as keen to succeed as I am, that really gives me something that I can I can grasp onto. Um, and it, 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 you know, it's a famous saying that when you find something you're passionate about, you never do a day's work in the rest of your life. And it's, it's, it's like that for me. I put in more hours now, more effort than I've ever done in any job, um, even when I was self-employed, because the work that I'm doing is so good. Um, and it's so much fun to be able to, to, to take that sort of tech for good mantra, apply it to worthy organizations, plow on through the challenges, achieve success and give them back those results that they deserve. Absolutely love it. I, uh, I really appreciate uh, you sharing that with us, Dan. I, um, I mean, I, I, I think uh, we probably know each other well enough to know I subscribe to the same view. So for me, I've, you know, I've had a problem with authority for as long as I can remember. Uh, <laughs> working for others doesn't naturally, uh, naturally come to me. Um, but, but I think, you know, working with organisations and individuals that really want to, you know, do something different be a bit disruptive and drive that change, you know, count me in every day of the week. Yeah, 100% sign me up. Brilliant. Uh, well, I really appreciate your uh, your time this afternoon. Thank you very much for talking to us. You're welcome. It's been a really fun chat.